got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. Smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today is Brian Steele Wills, author of A Battle from the Start, The Life of Nathan Bedford Forrest. We're, we talked in our first session a little bit about Forrest's background, his personality, uh, some of what made him the, the legendary leader that he was. Um, Brian, reading your book really uh, fascinated me. I've, I've certainly heard enough about Forrest o- over the years, but it was something to see how successful he was with this element of bluff that you talk about, with just threatening violence rather than actually using violence. Uh, it seemed to me he did that uh, a lot of times. Well, I think, again, if you look at his early life, uh, he grew up um, um, gambling, and uh, he grew up also in a frontier where you had to show strength in the face of a threat. And between the two, he learned how to read others. He learned how to, as they say in in the uh, more famous Texas Hold'em poker-type uh, tournaments, talk about uh, reading tales. He could read someone, and he could see the impact that whatever he was trying to do was accomplishing on them. And, again, I go back to Abel Strait. Abel Strait was carrying a raid out of, uh, in April and May 1863 in North Alabama. Forrest runs him down. He only has two artillery pieces with him and a handful of men, relatively speaking, certainly outnumbered considerably by the Federal forces. Uh, they are worn out in a pursuit that uh, Forrest had, uh, had followed them uh, across northern Alabama uh, in pursuit of, and so... They were worn out quite a bit, and I'm sure that played into it as well. But uh, when Forrest uh, arrived at the scene, of course, um, uh, he knew that he would have to make a small force look a lot larger. So he used a couple of methods. He uh, brought up the two artillery pieces. One story says that they circled a hill. 
the other uh, probably more accurate uh, description is that they came into view and then were ordered back. And each time they went out of sight, they changed horses. Uh, they had actually doubled the team, so they had extra horses available. And they uh, brought up the artillery numerous times until Straight uh, was pointing over Far's shoulder looking at all of this that was happening and said, the name of God, man, how many guns have you got? That's 16 that I've counted already. And Far said, I guess I've got enough to do the job. And, and uh, Straight was not in a position or didn't feel he was in a position to argue. And then he had couriers come up talking about units that didn't exist. And these phantom units just added to the numbers inflated the numbers in Strait's mind, so in a lot of ways he, he used Bluff to uh, force a larger force to surrender uh, to him at, uh, at, at uh, that raid of, in Strait's raid in Alabama. And that's very typical. Forrest would, uh, would use whatever means was, was at hand. Uh, some people would point out that uh, the typical cavalry tactic of taking every fourth man and using him as a horse holder uh, Forrest would occasionally either tie the horses up or use civilians to hold them so he could put every man forward and make the numbers look even larger. He would uh, beat uh, the types of drums that infantry had to make it sound as if he had infantry. He would move troops from point to point uh, when, it, when allowing a, 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 an enemy officer that he was trying to negotiate a surrender with, he would move troops from point to point to make it look like there were more there than there were. All of this was part of his of his uh, repertoire. He felt, uh, and I'll just say this, he, he did kill people in combat. He killed 30 enemy soldiers. He had uh, 29 horses shot out from under him, so he was in the thick of the fighting. But I think he uh, enjoyed winning, and if winning could be done by bluff or by intimidation, that was just as good for him. Well, he, he and he, he did succeed with that on a number of occasions. The uh, captured the Union post at Murfreesboro in July 1862 uh, with a measure of fighting. I, I wrote an article about that, and I, I recall Forrest galloping through town and defeating one of the Union encampments, and then going to the other one and, and pulling the same maneuver of, of giving the impression he had a larger force than he did until the Union force surrendered. Um, well, it's kind of like in, in uh, my most recent books on the Civil War in cinema, it's called Gone with the Glory. As I say about movies, when you've got a small, relatively small number of people to use in a film, don't film it in such a way that you see the ends of the line. Uh. Make it so that the eye extends the line beyond where you see on the screen. And the same thing Forrest would do, shifting troops back and forth. When he, early in the war, when he was... Uh, trying to bring out supplies and recruits from Kentucky, he made family members line up along a track as a train went by, so it would appear to be a much larger force. And, of course, as they sped along at uh, no doubt something like 30 miles an hour, the uh, train uh, people on the train would exaggerate in their minds what they were seeing. And I was interested to see that this was such a successful tactic for Forrest that you mentioned on a number of occasions he would have a force detached under a subordinate, and the subordinate would do the same thing, uh, would send in a surrender note, I should say, uh, a surrender demand, and sign Forrest's name to it. Uh, because the idea that if the Union thought they were up against Forrest himself, it was it was intimidating. It, uh, 
Uh, it, well, more it, than it, one commander actually asked to see him uh, on the notion that uh, they wanted to make sure it was him. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. They they came to to understand that the name Forrest meant something. Of course, they were also afraid after several of those forces were captured, it became pretty clear they had been, uh, as we say in the South, bamboozled, uh, that the... Uh, that then you didn't want to be the one who got caught in such a dilemma if you were the Union commander. So sometimes they try to protect themselves. It didn't it didn't often work. Uh, but there were times when Forrest ran into some Union commanders that he couldn't bluff. I mean, he couldn't intimidate, and sometimes they, uh, he was able to beat them anyway, and sometimes he was not. Well, well, that brings us to uh, the issue we can't avoid talking about when we talk about Forrest, uh, the events at Fort Pillow. Where uh, exactly that happened? Forrest requested the Union garrison to surrender, and they didn't. And, and as you point out, the, the Union commander uh, asked later, "Why didn't you surrender?" Said, "Well, I am not Hawkins," referring to uh, a Union officer who was repeatedly bluffed by Forrest. And uh, the word got out, and, and 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 at some point, someone calls Forrest's bluff. That happens at Fort Pillow, and uh, our listeners, I'm sure, know the outline of the story, the Forrest's men capture the fort, an earthwork, really. Uh, and in the aftermath, the Union garrison of, of white East Tennessee soldiers and black soldiers, uh, many of them are killed, uh, a very high percentage. The, the controversy that's raged ever since that day is, is, was this a massacre? Was it premeditated by Forrest? Was he responsible? What's your take on it? Well, I'm in the middle of uh, also trying to uh, continue that examination. I've, I've obviously examined it for the biography, and uh, and written about it in several other uh, areas as well. But uh, I'm currently trying to uh, finish a book on Forrest at Fort Pillow. It really deals with uh, Forrest himself in relationship to Fort Pillow, because so much, of course, is written about what's happened. But uh, I try to get it uh, both from his perspective, but also from the way that he felt that Fort Pillow shaped him for the rest of his life, and it certainly followed him as the butcher of Fort Pillow in, in uh, northern circles in particular. Um, you know, I'll just say simply that uh, if Forrest had wanted to wipe out the garrison at Fort Pillow the way the battle transpired, um, there would not have been any, if very many, prisoners taken at all. As it was, there weren't very many. I think uh, a little over 200 people captured out of about 580 or 600 uh, garrison members, and uh, only about 50 or 60 of those were African Americans. So uh, it's very true that the losses were disproportionate and the deaths to wounds were very disproportionate. More people were killed than were wounded, and as you know, studying the Civil War, and your listeners will know, reading about it, it's in any engagement, it's far more likely you'll be wounded than killed if something happens to you in that regard. So, uh, as I tell my students, when you see more dead than wounded in an engagement, you know something is wrong, something has happened. And, of course, my argument is that Forrest lost control of the battle, not that he carried out a premeditated massacre, because if that had been his intention, he would have, he would have done it. Uh, certainly come as close as he could humanly come, and, and the prisoners would have been either non-existent or they would have been so few in number as to be uh, negligible. And, uh, again, if, if you were killed in the heat of this engagement, 
uh, and you tried to surrender and you were killed anyway, it didn't matter what, what the circumstances were. You were not spared when you should have been spared. And, and I do believe that that happened on an individual basis uh, throughout that battlefield, that people were uh, acting on their own behalf. But I, and, and some of them, I think, also acting as they thought their commander would want them to act. And frankly, some of them didn't particularly, I think, care what Forrest or anyone else thought. So, you know, in that circumstance, I think he, he I still feel very strongly he lost control of that, of that battlefield. Well, it, I suppose then brings up a question of, of responsibility of chain of command, um, whether whether one can say Forrest is responsible for losing control, or maybe a, a, a more pertinent point would be to ask, what about the uh, the, the ethos, the, the the mindset of the men under Forrest's command? That if it's hard to imagine, uh, well, I'm trying to, to take us out of the Civil War from moment to a. Um, well, it's not impossible to imagine men on battle losing control under any circumstances because it's a life and death situation. Um, well, what you get into is the whole thing of, for instance, at San Jacinto, what happened in the swamp after the Texans overran the Mexican position where people killed that shouldn't have been killed, absolutely. Were they killed because Texans were over, were outraged? Were they killed even perhaps because of race? I mean, all of those things can, can be brought up, and, and we can think of far more modern examples as well. Um, Forrest, I will say this, uh, was adamant almost from the beginning and, and adamant in ways that, and let me just back up and say, Forrest was very aware of his image. It gets back to what we were talking about in the last segment. And he, and it mattered greatly what others thought of him, even others that he didn't particularly care about personally or, or, uh, you know, he would certainly act as if he didn't care what the Northern press said. I think he cared what the northern press said or what anybody said about him. And so as he gets further away from the event, more, uh, we'd say today, spin, more explanation comes forward for Forrest. But but uh, his initial position, his adamant position, was that he felt that African Americans who had been slaves should be returned to their owners. And uh, there are... Uh, instructions he gives the staff to to do that. So, you know, again, you know, it, that doesn't make him, you know, a model citizen. It doesn't make him a person that has 21st century values. But it doesn't make him a mass murderer either. That uh, his men somehow uh, garnered from his act, his own uh, ethos uh, that they should kill because they thought Forrest would approve of it or they should kill uh, African-Americans in particular. Um, you know, again, there's no love lost between the two sides in this kind of engagement, and race is certainly a factor in that. It, it certainly is. And to take it a step further, Forrest, as you quote him, not only says that, that escaped slaves who are captured be returned to their owners, but any uh, black soldier in, taken in uniform will be returned to his owner. He, he did not accept very well the concept of the, the free African-American, uh, the idea that Well, you know, it's funny. He sees an interesting person, and I'll say this, and, and, and maybe it'll give you a chuckle, and maybe it'll give other people a chuckle. After the war, uh, he is uh, given, uh, he, his, his attempt to revive his economic interest included 
uh, contracts that the Freedmen's Bureau repre- representatives noted were among the best in the region. And uh, part of uh, Forrest's understanding was that if that's the new reality, to pay someone and to make a favorable contract to, to get them to work for you, then so be it. Uh, whoever they are, black or white or whatever they might be, of course, he anticipated African Americans would be the ones who would return to the farm and the plantations, as he, as I'm sure he was not alone in that anticipation. The point is, is that, um, uh, he was accused, of course, of enticing other workers away from other owners by offering better contracts. Of course, today we call that the National Basketball Association. To the free market, to free agents. Exactly. And see, Forrest didn't care about race in that respect. He cared about business. And he wanted to get his business interests back, and giving African Americans better contracts made sense. Well, to take matters back just briefly to the Fort Pillow incident, I was about to say, well, you can't imagine, say, Robert E. Lee's soldiers losing control. And then, of course, at the crater, that's exactly what happened. Well, that is what happened. Uh, and they do massacre the black soldiers at the crater. And maybe, I don't want to use the word defense of Forrest here, but, but one way of understanding him or understanding Fort Pillow is is not to seek to put the blame on the commander so much as on uh, the fact that any white Confederate soldiers were liable to uh, put into action their uh, their ingrained racism of the era when they saw blacks in uniform and by trying to kill them. Well, what is it that uh, that uh, someone asked uh, William Tecumseh Sherman if if an African American was suitable to be a soldier and uh, and stop a bullet, and his comment was essentially, and a sandbag is better. So, you know, again, these these attitudes were prevalent throughout the throughout the era, and, and of course, uh, Forrest was certainly a member, a part of his time, a a person living in his times, and for good and ill that that brings out. Of course, he also has his own personality traits. I recognize that. You know, if if you stood up to him, he was not going to tolerate that. Now, there there were ways that that he did that. That you know, again, if could have passed along to his soldiers that they would have you know, carried out some of their actions based on what they thought their commander would want or would approve. Well, let me push one more question, and then I, I, as I read your book on Forrest, I thought this is really a a tightrope to walk. Here's a fascinating character with these extraordinary personal characteristics of violence and honor and uh, self-education and uh, self-control and the loss of self-control, uh, racism, but also a hard-headed business sense. Um, after the war, everything he's fought for as a society is, is washed away. And as the federal government makes a sort of tentative effort to install a new uh, society in the South based on suffrage for the, the freedmen, uh, Forrest and other conservative whites reject this and attempt to maintain white supremacy. And one way they do that is by forming secret organizations, most notably the Ku Klux Klan, uh, with which Forrest same is associated. Um, do we wrongly associate him with that group? Well, I always say, and this is very important that uh, people understand, that he did not found the Klan. He, he found it. 
In other words, he didn't start the Klan. The, start, the Klan started before he became a member of it. But uh, once it had gotten into uh, basically a statewide organization, or certainly had spread beyond Chulaski, Tennessee, where it began, uh, he uh, became involved in it. Now, Forrest didn't do anything that he didn't try to be in charge of it. And, and of course, he denies till the last of his days that uh, he was ever in the Klan, much less head of the Klan. But uh, uh, there are, uh, am- there is ample evidence. There are witnesses who will say that uh, when the Klan got large enough, they needed leadership, and they turned uh, to Nathan Bates Forrest. That he became the first Grand Wizard of the Klan. So, uh, and he saw it as again uh, a way of countering what he thought was a, a radical agenda that uh, that was targeting ex-Confederates and and. Uh, Basically, once his nemesis, William Ganaway Parson Brownlow, uh, leaves uh, Tennessee, uh, he orders the Klan to disband and uh, and feels like its effectiveness, its need, its purpose is, is accomplished. So, you know, again, we could get into race, we can get into a lot of factors. I mean, he's definitely a champion of home rule, of getting Democrats back in power, white Democrats back in power in the South. There's no question about that. But uh, but everything else beyond that is a far more complex story than, than uh, is generally understood. Well, well, we'll stop on that note. We're going to take another short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll... I'd like to ask you about your uh, current projects, and we'll do that in just a moment with Brian Wills here on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 